Thank you, Ned. It's delightful to be back at OSU. Our <clears throat> daughter completed the MFA program in dance here three years ago, and so my wife and I were here quite often when she was here studying and performing. The only downside is that, as you can tell, I have contracted some version of the virus that I gather has been moving through the Columbus area as well. And so I apologize that you're going to have to listen to this terrible rasp in my voice. But uh, I intend to try my best to make it through a talk that should be between 45 minutes or an hour or until my voice gives out, whichever comes first. We'll see. I have been working, as Ned said, on a book that deals with the norms and practices of democracy. And so I'm going to try to do two different things in this presentation today. I'm going to talk about some of the themes that drive that overview of democracy from the ancient world up through the late 19th century on both sides of the Atlantic. And then I'm going to turn to an overview of a new book that I'm beginning to work on in September on American democratic traditions from the 17th century to the present. So it's a little bit on the general 30,000 feet level and some suggestions about how it will be brought down to earth on the American side. But it's going to be covering so much ground that I'll be moving very quickly through a wide range of different topics which means that there should be something here for everyone to find interesting, and there should be something vulnerable for all of you who want to raise objections or questions or challenges at the end. Well, my history of democracy in European and American thought begins with Michel de Montaigne, a French writer who lived during the 16th century wars of religion. Montaigne's watchwords were those he had on his medallion. Je m'abstiens, or I restrain myself on one side, and on the verso, que sais-je, what do I know? Those insights lay at the heart of Montaigne's ethic of reciprocity and his emphasis on autonomy or self-rule, which are two of the principal components of my argument about democracy as a way of life. It's true that institutions and legal safeguards have been an essential part of understandings of self-government from the ancient world to the present. Social scientists have argued that defining features of democracy include a wide suffrage, independent authority for elected officials, and civil liberties for individuals. But crucial as those dimensions are, from a historian's perspective, those conceptions of democracy are too narrow and too thin. They're too narrow because they allow us to because they don't allow us to understand the diverse forms of democracy as it has developed and the stutter step ironies that have led to its emergence. And that conception is too thin to capture the cultural preconditions without which democracy is impossible. Two of those preconditions are especially crucial. First is the ethic of reciprocity, the willingness to let your worst enemy govern if she wins the election. That willingness is always fragile, as in our own day, and it can be destructive. It can be the, the willingness to let your enemy win 
can be destroyed with disastrous consequences for democracy. The second of those crucial features is autonomy, the independence of the individual to internalize legal and ethical norms. Without a commitment to autonomy, any group of three can yield a majority of two committed to enslaving the other one. Yet both the ethic of reciprocity and the ideal of autonomy, like the principle of popular sovereignty itself, are delicate, intricate, and multidimensional cultural constructs, internally unstable and exceedingly difficult to put together using the blunt instrument of politics. In short, <clears throat> successful democracies depend on cultural resources that the struggle to achieve democracy endangers erodes, and often destroys. To complicate matters even further, the successful creation of democracy itself unleashes forces that endanger, erode, and often destroy the cultural resources, especially the ethic of reciprocity, on which democracy depends. For that reason, the title of my book on democracy is Tragic Irony democracy in European and American thought. The history of democracy has been a history of trying to reconcile persistent tensions present from ancient Athens until today. Democracy requires balancing contradictory aspirations, contradictory impulses, contradictory values, which is why democracy has, in practice, in all the forms it has taken, never been stable. Democracy inevitably generates dissatisfaction. It comes into being because it promises a way to manage or resolve disagreements, but democracy by its nature also breeds deep conflicts of its own. A partial list of those tensions include the five that I want to mention by way of introduction today. First, the tension between popular sovereignty, or the will of the people, as the fundamental source of government on the one hand, and on the other, the need to ensure the stability of law and the inviolability and independence of legitimate authority, despite the volatility of public whims. Second is the tension between liberty, on the one hand, and the inevitable boundedness of individuals in the particular historical communities within which they must exist, the condition that the German philosopher Hegel called Zittlichkeit, or situatedness, the fact that we inhabit this culture at this time, in this place, not an abstraction of abstract individuals without particular values who come together to govern themselves. Third is the tension between the value of participation on the one hand and the value of representation on the other. Although this tension becomes obvious in large-scale city-states or nations, it exists even in town meetings. It exists not only because all individuals cannot be involved at all times in the affairs of government, but also because the process of selecting certain individuals to serve in government is itself valuable, as is authorizing those individuals to deliberate to determine the public interest on their own through the process of give and take, the process of deliberation. Since the 1960s, 
Many people, particularly in the academic world, have come to believe that participation is the essence of democracy and that representation is some sort of bastardized or second best form. It's become conventional to designate a representative democracy a republic and to distinguish it from real democracy, which is said to require the direct participation of citizens rather than the election of representatives. One of the main objectives of my study is to dismantle that false distinction, which has only a flimsy historical foundation. It has been projected backward from the post-World War II era by conservatives and radicals alike for reasons having more to do with our ideologies than with historical evidence. Hybrid forms of democracy that combine participation, as in, say, juries, and representation have been far more common historically and for reasons that are important. Fourth is the tension between political democracy and social or economic democracy. Some of democracy's champions and some of its critics have considered democracy strictly a question of politics and law, one person, one vote, or equal rights before the law. Some see in that separation of politics and law from society and the economy the reasons for democracy's success. Others think it explains why democracy has been a disappointment. Viewing democracy historically, there has been no single or essential relation between politics and society that has persisted across time and across different cultures. Fifth, there is a tension in democracy between humility and hope, between resignation and aspiration. The very willingness to put things to a vote, which Henry D. Thoreau in his essay on civil disobedience resisted because he likened voting in democracy to a kind of gaming. That very process of putting things to a vote upsets some people. It empowers the majority to make decisions that the minority must accept. It requires individuals to accept the possibility that others, including those whom they consider ignorant or evil, might be empowered to govern. The patterns generated by democracy derive from the tension between the acceptance, on our limitations, acceptance of our limitations on the one hand and our sometimes immoderate desire to see our friends win and to see our enemies vanquished. The firmer our convictions, the likelier we are to demonize our opponents. And that's a dynamic that has led, in many instances, to civil war and to the death of democracy. For that reason, the history of democracy in the Atlantic world is inseparable from the history of religion. I want to show how and why ideas of democracy emerged from the carnage of religious warfare, and how and why our understandings of the history of democracy are inadequate unless we pay close attention to the overlap between religious doctrines and religious practices on the one hand, and the shaping of social, political, and legal frameworks on the other. From Thomas More's Utopia in 1516 to the peasant rebellions of the 1520s and the rapid spread of Calvinism in the middle decades of the 16th century, 
revolutionary ideas about the capacity of ordinary people challenged traditional Christian ideas of authority and prevailing practices of governance. As religious warfare intensified in France through the 16th century, the savagery that inspired Montaigne's restraint and his skepticism, and that inspired his, and made him wary of popular government, poisoned much of European culture. The only alternative to the endless carnage apparent in the religious wars seemed to be stable, unchallengeable authority. For that reason, the anti-democratic ideology of royal absolutism, articulated in France by Jean Baudin and in England by James I, by Thomas Hobbes, and by Robert Filmer, came to dominate debate in the early modern world. Democracy in Europe and America emerged against the backdrop of the murderous wars of religion. And early modern misgivings about popular government have to be understood against the background of the violence perpetrated by ordinary people against other ordinary people for more than a century. I think it is because scholars have neglected that history that we so complacently dismiss as elitism the skepticism about democracy that was expressed in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's for that reason that we fail to acknowledge just how revolutionary the ideas and the experiments with limited or partial popular government were in that context. My goal in the book on the American democratic tradition that I'll begin writing in the fall is to produce a new overview of American history that focuses on changing ideas and changing practices of democracy from the 17th century to the present. The scholarly community has grown increasingly skeptical of our capacity to provide knowledge that is more than local and values that are more than projections of personal preferences. In these circumstances, it has become increasingly difficult, but I think it has become increasingly important to produce general historical interpretations that explain how our contemporary culture has emerged. I will argue that it's possible to locate within American history a tradition of discursive democracy that more accurately reflects the complicated historical process than do our standard accounts. Our familiar polarities stand in the way of historical understanding. The standard contrasts between capitalism and socialism, between classical republicanism and liberalism in the 17th and 18th centuries, or between liberalism and conservatism in the 20th century, represent our own Manichaean worldview and our categories, rather than the complex interaction between changing political ideas and changing social economic conditions over the course of American history. I intend to focus on some familiar standard canonical figures and others who have been overlooked, representatives of previously marginalized groups, and to try to advance the, the uh, argument without the filters of anachronistic categories. I hope to offer an account of democratic traditions that emphasizes the central importance of difference, the importance of dialogue between those who have disagreed from the very beginning 
of American history and the central importance of the ethical principle of reciprocity, which requires trust across the various ideological divides that have been present throughout American history. The new social history of the 1960s and 1970s emerged from the realization that much of the American past had been neglected by standard historical surveys. And the infusion of new perspectives and new voices has transformed American history in ways that are all to the good. But that came at a cost. It has made it harder for us to put the picture back together. And that's what I want to try to do. American historians in the middle decades of the 20th century took for granted that the story of America was, among other things, a story of democracy. American historians today assume the opposite. In one recent story by a friend of mine, an excellent historian named Alan Taylor, the only democratic communities in early America are to be found aboard pirate ships. Most historians of 18th century America lament the shortcomings of the revolution and the retreat from democracy in the Constitution. I think those judgments are mistaken. The history of democracy in early America, like the history of democracy in Europe, is neither a story of triumph nor a fiction nor a non-story. It is instead the history of a series of struggles between people with different and often incompatible ideas about autonomy, about reciprocity, authority, community, and above all, above salva about salvation. In the 17th century, few of those who engineered the institutions and practices of popular government in America thought of themselves, self-consciously, as Democrats. They associated that idea, as had Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, Baudin, and James I, with the absence of restraint, the degradation of government, the indulgence of sin, willfulness, and excess. Even so, even with all of those misgivings, some of the first English settlers in North America embraced, for religious reasons, the doctrine of self-rule that led them to emigrate from Anglican England and establish their own communities of saints in what used to be the harsh climate of New England, where we used to have winter. Individuals such as Roger Williams and Thomas Hooker set up colonies in places such as Providence and Hartford to escape the authority of people who were just as firmly committed to the principle of divine sovereignty that officials such as John Winthrop invoked to discipline dissenters in Massachusetts. No one in New England emerged from these early struggles altogether satisfied with the outcome. By 1660, though, various forms of governments, governance had emerged in England's North American colonies, particularly but not exclusively in New England, that rested more firmly and explicitly on the principle of popular sovereignty and that incorporated more elements of popular participation than did any forms of government to be found anywhere in 17th century Europe. I want to emphasize that no one set out deliberately or self-consciously to achieve that result. The irony of democracy in America thus began with the first settlements established in New England. The charters and the records of those town meetings and the writings of individuals such as Williams and Hooker 
contained vibrant debates about the meaning and the prospects of what they called democracy. That is the term that some of these settlers began to use to describe their practices and to describe their emerging ideals. As they worked to do God's will in this process, they inadvertently turned the idea of God's covenant with his chosen people into the practices of self-government. Whatever we might think of those new settlements in Rhode Island and in Connecticut, which, like the Massachusetts Bay Colony, excluded women from positions of authority and permitted owning slaves, whatever we might think of those values, these communities conceived of themselves as democracies. And I think we're missing something if we fail to pay attention to the reasons why they used that contentious term. Struggles developed within these colonies almost immediately. Important differences separated them from each other and from their, the English colonies to their south. But all of these colonies developed forms of self-government, at least in their legislatures, if not in the particular institutions of town meeting that were so pivotal in New England. When Alexis de Tocqueville visited the United States in the 1830s, he called the New England town the cradle of democracy. I think he was right. I published a couple of articles, one of which I've actually discussed with a group of historians here at Ohio State, trying to explain why I agree with that judgment and why I think more recent historians who dismiss New England as an oligarchy are mistaken in that judgment. Because this is an unconventional at this point, perspective on New England, I was looking forward to being pummeled by specialists on 17th century America. But fortunately, in the last two years, two books have been published by a former student of mine named Jason Malloy and another by a colleague named David Hall, two specialists on the 17th century, who have demonstrated convincingly the extent to which popular participation in New England was the defining feature of the New England town, precisely as Tocqueville argued in the 1830s. All one has to do is look across the Atlantic to the English Civil War to see the difference. The ideas of the levelers who forced the issue of popular sovereignty in the 1640s in England led to the regicide, led to the death of Charles I, and to the restoration of the monarchy in England. So frightening were the thoughts of popular sovereignty in the English monarchy. So frightening indeed that monarchy is to this day as stable in England as it has ever been. In England's North American colonies, by contrast, during the 17th century, these institutions of self-government grew to the point that after the 1688 glorious revolution in England, when the crown tried to reassert its authority in the colonies, it met resistance from New England to the south, from colonists who had already become accustomed before the end of the 17th century to governing themselves. My chapter on the American Revolution will follow the ideas of very familiar figures, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, the three who were charged with writing the Declaration of Independence. 
The similarities among these three figures illustrate the widely shared commitments to Christian and Enlightenment thought from the northern through the middle to the southern colonies. Their differences reveal the parameters of American culture during these decisive years that led to the successful break from Britain. <clears throat> Franklin was a skeptical champion of simple virtues who nevertheless delighted in the company of refined cosmopolitan Europeans. Adams, whose sensibility was powerfully shaped by dissident Puritans, such as the preacher Jonathan Mayhew, contributed several of the seminal texts that articulated the case for independence, a case that was premised on religious reasons for the superiority of democracy to monarchy. Jefferson, who was initially less a creator than a consumer of the ideas that animated the American Revolution, nevertheless emerged as the champion and the symbol of self-government, despite his complicity with the very antithesis of democracy, the institution of slavery. The tragic choice made by the founding generation to forge unity on the backs of enslaved African Americans shows the depth of the entanglement between slavery and American democracy from its beginnings. The next chapter will examine America's democratic constitutions, democratic constitutions at the state level and at the federal level. The templates for the United States Constitution emerged during the early years of the Revolution, when each of the colonies wrote or revised its charters to establish its own form of democratic government. John Adams wrote the Constitution for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. In fact, he wrote it twice because the first version he submitted for ratification was turned down by the people of Massachusetts. And recent research suggests that even the second version, the version that became law in 1780 and that remains in place in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, was itself perhaps not ratified by the people. The disagreements in America during those years were that deep, no matter where you looked from New England to the South. In fact, that was the depth of those disagreements that led to dissatisfaction with the flimsy union created by the Articles of Confederation, and that dissatisfaction led to the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Scholars have disagreed about how we should understand that Constitution at least for a century. And the most recent account of that ratification process, Pauline Mayer's wonderful book, Ratification, published last year, I think does nothing to resolve that disagreement. Americans had very different conceptions, both of what the Constitution meant and of what it should do from the 1780s on. But I will argue that the Constitution cemented rather than betrayed Americans' commitment to democracy. Although many historians have characterized the Constitution as a reversal or at least as a blunting of the revolution's democratic momentum, I will try to show how wrong-headed that widespread belief is by looking at the arguments that were made in defense of the Constitution, particularly by those who were the leading architects and leading defenders of the constitutional compromise that emerged in Philadelphia, James Madison, and Pennsylvania's James Wilson.
Madison believed that democracy could survive only if the dangerous energy of democracy, unrest that had led either to anarchy or to the reestablishment of tyranny, could somehow be harnessed by democratic means. And that was Madison's word, democratic. Representative democracy would ensure that only those Madison called virtuous, by which he meant people capable of seeing beyond their narrow self-interest to the common good, would be chosen to serve in positions of authority. And that's how I think we need to see the Federalist, that often studied but I think usually misunderstood canonical document at the founding of the United States. In his speeches in Philadelphia, in the writings he made to himself and to those with whom he was in correspondence, and in his early speeches in Virginia after the convention, Madison consistently used the word democracy to characterize the United States Constitution. It was only after his co-author Alexander Hamilton used the word republic in Federalist 9 that Madison found himself forced into using that term in the canonical Federalist 10 that we all think indicates his departure from a commitment to democracy. I will argue in considerable detail that that understanding of Madison and thus our understanding of the purposes of the federal structure of the Constitution has been mistaken at least since the 1950s. One of the principal objectives of my book is to establish, and I think it's more accurate to say re-establish, the essentially democratic character of the United States Constitution. For the first half century after its ratification, no one in the United States or Europe doubted that this was the first democratic nation. I think we need to pay attention to the reasons for that unanimous judgment rather than assuming that we are right and they were wrong. Few scholars have realized that in Philadelphia, Madison's principal ally, James Wilson, wrote the most decisive speeches in favor of the Constitution with a copy of Rousseau's social contract at his elbow. The purpose of the Constitution, as both Madison and Wilson understood it, was to secure democracy, not to defang it. They envisioned a form of popular government that would not empower self-interested individuals, but would instead provide the cultural resources as well as the institutional framework necessary to enable the citizens of the new nation to discover, through representative democracy, the general will or the common good or the public interest of the American people. And for that reason, the work that Ned Foley has done on the contested gubernatorial uh, campaign of 1792 and the way in which that contest was resolved is fascinating to me as a study of early democracy because it suggests the tension between partisan loyalties, which had already become intense as early as 1792, and the lingering desire, which I think in some ways lingers to our own day, to transcend partisanship and to move beyond it to something that Rousseau called the general will and that Madison and Wilson called the public interest or the common good. After spending 
a fair amount of time on the revolution and the Constitution, I will turn to the antebellum period and look at the rise and spread of democracy in that era. The breathtaking expansion of the suffrage during the early 19th century demonstrates, I think, that the Constitution provided the framework for an increasingly inclusive democracy. But I will not be celebrating the supposedly democratic egalitarian ethos of Andrew Jackson and his followers who called themselves Democrats. Instead, this chapter will show how the democracy that they put in place actually worked. It was a democracy of masters who were empowered by the assent of ordinary people that functioned in practice to bolster slavery. I want to show how it rolled back the limited gains made by women in the era of the revolution, how it legitimated the removal of Indians from their homelands to the Indian territory in Oklahoma. By contrast, I will argue, it was the Whigs, long the whipping boys of self-proclaimed American Democrats, who championed education and the cause of disfranchised women, slaves, and Native Americans. Those of you who have read your Tocqueville will recognize that his analysis of America is crucial to this argument. Tocqueville himself owed deep debts to the New England informants he met during his stay in Boston, a city he loved because he considered it more cosmopolitan, more refined, more European than most American cities were, particularly more European than that vulgarest of all American cities, New York. So the feud between Red Sox fans and Yankees fans has deep roots. It goes all the way back to the 1830s at least. Tocqueville spent a lot of time with former US President John Quincy Adams and with the historian and future president of Harvard, Jared Sparks. Adams and Sparks alluded, excuse me, alerted Tocqueville to the evidence that has eluded more recent historians concerning the New England town and the ways in which the institutions of self-government there actually provided templates for what grew in the 18th century into American democracy. Those informants, along with the writings of Jefferson and Madison in particular, shaped Tocqueville's understanding of American democracy as a culture that depended crucially on social equality, on the absence of the gaps between rich and poor that were so much a feature of European life. That was what Tocqueville knew from France, and it was what surprised him more than anything else in America, the relative middling status of even the wealthier Americans. And as both Jefferson and Madison agreed, the American democracy as an experiment could survive only if those gaps between the rich and the poor continued to shrink. The first piece of legislation Jefferson submitted to the Virginia House of Burgesses when he came back from writing the Declaration of Independence was a bill to end primogeniture and entail, the mechanisms by which European aristocracies had managed to maintain their fortunes. Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Franklin, all of them understood that American democracy would work only if we concerned ourselves with preventing the rise of a gap between rich and poor. That sensibility, that ethic of reciprocity, that awareness that 
what needed to be understood was what was shared across partisan lines was a sensibility that was also shared by abolitionists such as Frederick Douglass and Harriet Beecher Stowe, by champions of women's rights such as Margaret Fuller. It was a worldview antithetical to the emphasis on self-interest that was central to Jacksonian democracy. In Lincoln's speeches of the 1850s and the 1860s, that Whig sensibility with its emphasis on empathy and equality reached its pinnacle. Lincoln's ability to inspire sacrifice for the Union and for some Northerners at least for emancipation, eventually, if not initially, showed the potential power of linking popular sovereignty with the ideal of autonomy for all Americans. In the disheartening retreat from democracy after the Civil War, white Americans in the North as well as the South showed the depth of their racism and revealed that their commitment to the ethic of reciprocity that the Whigs, Tocqueville, Frederick Douglass, and Lincoln had prized was actually rooted in soil far too barren to survive. The wounds that were opened during the Civil War have not healed. It remains the principal divide in American culture, the divide that continues to threaten the ethic of reciprocity on which American democracy depends. If you trace the lines of the most vociferous criticism of the 20th century Democratic Party in general and of Barack Obama in particular, they lead back to the Confederacy. The Civil War had paradoxical consequences for American democracy. The suffrage and civil liberties expanded and then contracted. Slavery was abolished even as forms of racial subjugation were reconfigured and then reinvigorated. The question of women's rights at last came into focus, even though doing anything about it continued to be put off for another day. I believe the United States Civil War had the same long-term consequences as the 16th century wars of religion, the 17th century English Civil War, and the 18th century French Revolution which became, as it unfolded, another war of religion. Like those conflicts, the American Civil War poisoned the ethic of reciprocity on which democracy depends. It sanctified the autonomy of some individuals at the expense of others. And it left a legacy of hatred and distrust that has made further progress toward democracy less rather than more likely today, a century and a half later. Democracy begins in blood, and it comes to life only through conflict. When that conflict has taken the shape of civil war, however, it has meant the end, or at least the indefinite deferral, of the cultural underpinnings on which democracy must rest. That has been the tragic irony of democracy. Well, that's where my book, Tragic Irony, ends. But that's not where American democracy ends, of course. And so I want to continue the story by talking about the post-Civil War period and bring it up to the present. 
After the Civil War, America experimented with not just a retrenchment from the crusade for racial equality, but also from the idea of activist government that had been at the heart of the Whig project. And we saw the brief rise and triumph of a regime of laissez-faire. But conceiving of democracy as a struggle for survival among self-interested individualists had horrific consequences for almost all but the richest Americans. It was rising dissatisfaction with that ethos, the ethos that caused Mark Twain and Sam Warner to call this the Gilded Age, that fueled the rise of populism and progressivism. Now ideas about interdependence of individuals derived from the emerging social sciences inspired wave after wave of challenges to the regime of unregulated competition and those gave rise to the variety of reforms that we call progressivism. But it's important to note that those who opposed progressive reforms, such as the graduated income tax and economic regulation, never conceded defeat. We might think there's something unprecedented about the anti-government and anti-trade union sentiment of today's Republican Party, but it echoes the arguments of many Republicans in the 1920s, after the disappointments of the end of World War I and the failure of the US to join the League of Nations. In the 1920s, many champions of laissez-faire resurfaced. They celebrated the so-called free market in which government and law protected manufacturers and merchants, but left everyone else to fend for themselves. These figures championed a return to what they called the normalcy of minimal government, which had in fact never existed in America except for a brief time in the, 17, in the 1870s and 1880s. But they did not altogether carry the day. Instead, as Herbert Hoover's lost classic, a book entitled American Individualism, demonstrates progressive ideas had penetrated even the minds of most American conservatives by the 1920s. Hoover himself contrasted the American con commitment to voluntary social service a tendency that he traced to the earliest settlements in America against the much harsher, harsher traditions of European conservatism, in which hierarchies were prized and in which the common people were reviled as a mob. As Secretary of Commerce and then as President of the United States, Hoover worked to put into practice his ideal of what he called an associative state, which seemed to indicate the irreversible triumph of the principle of a regulated economy. But Hoover was working against a tide of deregulation, and that tide of deregulation ended in depression in much the same way that a tide of deregulation has ended in the Great Recession of our own day. Yet Hoover's approach to government, an alliance between business and government, did suggest that a new form of conservatism was emerging and that form of conservatism formed the liberal wing of the Republican Party from the 1920s up until the 1980s. Some of the social democratic initiatives that emerge in the very end of the 19th century and bubble up in the progressive period before the First World War don't receive full hearing until the New Deal. Progressives who remained active in the 1930s, including John Dewey and Louis Brandeis, 
and their students and followers who administered some of the programs of the New Deal wielded the ideas of interdependence and active government intervention to empower previously excluded groups, such as industrial workers, farmers, African Americans, thereby creating a new coalition that, as you know, dominated American politics for decades. But FDR's most ambitious program, what he called his second Bill of Rights, he announced only in his 1944 State of the Union Address when he laid out an expansive plan for a social welfare state that was every bit as ambitious as, everything, as anything that was put in place after World War II in any of the nations of Northern Europe. In fact, when the beverage plan was announced toward the end of World War II in Britain, beverage, or, uh, Roosevelt commented to his aide, Francis Perkins, that it should have been called the Roosevelt Plan because every component of it had been outlined in the plan that Roosevelt's National Resources Planning Board had given to him on the eve of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, when he had to abandon his obligations as Dr. New Deal to become Dr. Win the War. But in 1944, Roosevelt wanted to recommit the nation to that project of a living wage for every American health care for every American, housing programs for every American, and education for every American. The programs that came to life for returning GIs in the GI Bill. What FDR had had in mind was a program of that sort for every American as a way to redeem the sacrifices that Americans had made during the Second World War. After his death, of course, the Second Bill of Rights fell before the opposition of a coalition of anti-progressive Republicans and Southern Democrats. That failure, which I discuss in reading Obama because Barack Obama himself pays a fair amount of attention to it in The Audacity of Hope, showed again how fractured American democracy remained in the 1940s. New Dealers by the 1940s envisioned a more expansive democracy than did their predecessors, but their opponents cherished strikingly different ideals premised on class, gender, and racial hierarchies that harkened back to different traditions in which white males held power and everyone else acknowledged the legitimacy of their authority. As the politics of the 1950s made clear, those values appealed just as powerfully to the deeply embedded convictions of millions of Americans as FDR's principles appealed to many heirs of progressivism in the Democratic Party. My penultimate chapter on the post-World War II decades will focus on the emergence of what was called at the time and has continued to be called consensus. Americans did seem to cluster around an American ideal that supposedly offered prosperity as well as peace for everyone. Although we now know, thanks to a wonderful book by Wendy Wall called Inventing the American Dream, that that ideal was deliberately and self-consciously and successfully constructed and sold to the American people by business groups and political conservatives as an explicit alternative to the sensibility of the New Deal. The engineers of that ideal succeeded in making it appear the inevitable consequence and the culmination of world history. Uh, 
As a result, many observers came to share the view that social and economic conflict was a thing of the past, something that simply didn't exist in the United States. America was now presiding over an era of economic growth that would eventually lead all the world into the American orbit and bring about, to use the phrase that Daniel Bell used, the end of ideology. Beneath that veneer, of course, cracks were beginning to form, even in the 1950s and in the 1960s and 70s, the civil rights movement, feminism, the counterculture, and the anti-war movement combined to shatter the brittle glaze of consensus. Quietly gathering momentum beneath the ruckus of radical protest, though, was a counter-counterculture, a conservative resurgence committed to rolling back many of the changes achieved during the 1960s. This second rollback of the second reconstruction, as the civil rights movement was often called, paved the way for a second gilded age, the age in which we live now. The goal of the Reagan revolution was to restore, or in many cases, to create a model of America as a nation united around a few simple truths, truths such as those expressed in the Pledge of Allegiance that prayer-like paean to the flag that in its current form dates all the way back only to 1954 when the phrase under God was added. Strikingly, the conservative movement considered itself just as democratic as indeed more democratic than those who called themselves Democrats, the so-called radical elites who urged the further expansion of government in the name of democracy. According to some of these self-proclaimed conservatives, the democracy touted by the left was a sham. It betrayed American traditions by empowering less than authentic Americans. That group including, included feminists who didn't know their proper role and to make matters worse, championed the cause of abortion. It included African Americans who also didn't know their role and to make matters worse, manipulated affirmative action programs to leapfrog over struggling whites. It included recent and often illegal immigrants who didn't know they weren't welcome, and to make matters worse, gained unearned access to government services. It included agnostics and atheists who rejected all religious traditions. And finally, it included gays and lesbians who demanded respect even though their very existence threatened the sacred institution of marriage as a union between a man and a woman. Although both the left and the right claimed the mantle of democracy, the chasm dividing their rival versions seemed as wide and deep as it had ever been in American history. And so it has remained into our own day. The shape of the final chapter that this book will hold is difficult to predict because I want to bring it up to the present. I'll certainly trace many of the themes that I develop in reading Obama, including the late 20th century rise of the ideas of anti-foundationalism and the resurgence of philosophical pragmatism. Such ways of thinking challenge the ideas of timeless universal truths that are embraced by many conservatives and also embraced by many on the left, people who were every bit as sure of their own certain truths as many of those on the right, people who were angered that the first black president of the United States did not share their self-righteousness, 
and instead called for empathy and debate and compromise wherever it was possible. Beyond demonstrating that the ideas emerging in the last decade complicate increasingly hackneyed and unhelpful categorizations of a coherent and cohesive left and right, I'll reflect on my, in my conclusion on the ways in which current debates connect to long-term conflicts and reconceptualizations of democracy, the debates that constitute American history. In the persistence of conflict over the long haul, there is continuity. But in the terms of conflict, there is always change. Because I won't complete this book for a few years, and because I'm a historian and not a prophet, it would be reckless to predict where American culture will be when I write this concluding chapter. My aim in this book is to provide a history of American democracy informed by the best scholarship of specialists and attuned to the urgent needs of the present. The refusal of the right to acknowledge the legitimacy of the left's conception of America as a nation committed to equality is mirrored by the left's refusal to concede that the right's aversion to centralized authority is also deeply rooted in American history. Unless we can restore a fuller and more complicated understanding of the centrality and the persistence of disagreement at the heart of American democracy, I fear we will continue the increasingly stylized and increasingly futile shadow dance of hyper-partisan posturing that constitutes American politics today. With this book, I want to illuminate in part because I want to recover an earlier commitment to nurturing a culture of democracy premised on the ethic of reciprocity. That is an American tradition worth studying, just as autonomy and equality remain American ideals worth struggling to achieve. Thank you. I characterize my work 
as neither exceptionalist nor anti-exceptionalist, but post-exceptionalist. <laughs> I think we just need to get over the debate over whether America is exceptional or not. Yes, America is exceptional. So is France. So is Britain. So is Germany. So is Switzerland. Um, every nation is unlike every other nation. And what is distinctive about America, I think, is that the colonies were enabled to develop, not in a vacuum, because obviously there were American Indians there who were moved away in order to enable this to happen, but developed outside the boundaries of English rule. And as a result, were able to develop these institutional governments that when the revolution happened, were fully formed, were mature, and they were used to the give and take of democracy, so that when these struggles begin to break out in the 1790s, they don't lead to civil war. When those struggles break out in England in the 1640s, when they break out in France during the revolution, they do lead to civil war. And every time the revolution breaks out, it leads to civil war. In America, these institutions and this culture of democracy were in place that enabled these institutions gradually to take hold and establish themselves. The exclusions, the perpetuation of hierarchy, the limitation of an ethic of reciprocity are all obvious in American history. Slavery, the exclusion of women, the exclusion of people who don't have sufficient property to be able to vote. All of that I take for granted. Um, the point I want to make is that the presence of these institutions and the ability of white men at least and then a broader selection of citizens to argue about how the nation was going to develop is distinctive to the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that I think is something that we have lost sight of since the 1960s in our obsession with the limitations and the exclusions. So what I'm trying to do in some ways is to pull the pendulum back to realize that there was something about the creation of this first democratic nation that we need to take seriously. We need to understand the way that 19th century observers understood it. My own sense of the way in which political democracy has developed in the direction of social democracy has about it a telos that Northern European nations have much moved much further toward than we have. That's my own vision of it. But what I want to avoid doing is saying that's democracy. That's my vision of democracy. But I think America has contained multiple visions of democracy of which that is only one. I saw a question in the back. Um, Good evening. At least one hand up in the back. Let's go to the back and then we'll come to the front. Uh, so, sure. Sure. Oh, well, can you hear me? Yes. All right, I'm going to switch them then. It's more. <laughs> Whether you think our current period 
is, is without precedent, or is this part of a pattern that you see recurring in American history where democracy is, is perverted or significantly affected, if you will, choices are significantly affected by those who have a lot of money to spend on campaigns and the backing of their own candidates. Yeah, I think what we have now is a catastrophe. Um, let's go too far to point out. I believe that Citizens United is one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court has ever rendered, and I hope it will not stand. Uh, I think from now we'll be having a conversation about how it was rolled back, how it was reversed. There has always been corruption in American politics from the 17th century on, and the practice of buying votes, either by offering alcohol or offering a meal, is as old as the first vote that was cast in Virginia. So that's nothing new. Um, there have been rises and falls in the amount of money and the openness of corruption. Part of what many people on the left celebrated about Jacksonian democracy was the sort of wink and a nod um, about openly buying votes. And again, my sense is that that's not actually democracy. When you are not even trying to persuade people, you're simply treating them as members of the club. Um, and because they're members of the club, of course they're going to side with you. Um, that has been viewed since the 60s as a sort of blue-stocking attitude, the, the, the approach that doesn't appreciate that's how politics always is. I don't think that's how politics always is. I think it has occasionally been deliberative. I think it has been about making arguments and choosing people because you thought they were actually a better representative rather than a member of your club. That's part of my um, dissatisfaction with Aaron Folk's democracy of the Jacksonian sort. So, Corruption is certainly something that we've had ever since the 17th century. The corruption in urban machines in the late 19th century was one high water mark of that. The corruption that we see today, I would say, eclipses that degree of corruption because we know from the social science how effective big money is in persuading people, if not to vote for a particular candidate, not to vote another candidate. And so we know that the infusion of however many millions of dollars it was in the South Carolina primary had the effect of changing the landscape in the Republican primary. And you can predict looking forward to November that it's likely to make a big difference then as well. What we don't know is exactly what the outcome is going to be. Some of you will have seen in recent days stories in the newspapers indicating how few, relatively speaking, small donors have contributed to Mitt Romney's campaign and to his super PAC. The implicit argument is, if it's all big money, it's illegitimate. And I think some of the dissatisfaction with his candidacy comes from that understanding. So it's not just the people in this room we're unhappy, many of you, if some of you are not, we're unhappy with Citizens United. Many Americans are. And so I think it's not clear how that's going to play out, but I still think it's a disaster for American democracy. Uh, 
Sorry. 
as far as um, social protest movements, those are as American as apple pie. They've always been part of American democracies. So before there was a United States nation, and if we're lucky, they'll never go away. Because the party system necessarily takes energies and channels them into particular frameworks, into particular forms that are domesticated. And sometimes social protests need to happen outside those channels. Um, abolitionism begins outside the party structure. The civil rights movement begins outside the party structure. Many of the anti-war movements have, been, have started outside the party structures. If they're successful in generating enough popular support, they then transform the position of parties. As we saw actually in 2010, when the Tea Party movement really did pull the Republican Party um, to the right in a way that some of us partisans on the left think was really very good um, because it makes them unelectable in the general election. But we've been proven wrong before and we've been proven wrong again. Um, yes. Maybe uh, the other side of what you're talking 
my understanding that uh, the founders thought he needed an, an educated electorate. Would you, would you comment on our education system here in the United States <coughs> with respect to that? Uh, that is, I think uh, we, we all consider our educational system abysmal. Um, is our democracy going to survive given It's a very good question, and I, I do think that uh, one wouldn't have to look very far in John Adams or Thomas Jefferson to see the emphasis they placed on education as the essential quality of a democracy. Because if you can't follow arguments, if you can't understand complicated ideas, you can't make good judgments. And judgment was what they valued more than anything else. So. That constitution that John Adams wrote in 1780 specifies that the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts have an obligation to provide for the education of the citizens. Um, and at that point, it ran all the way from elementary school, as you can see done, through the college in Cambridge, um, which was thought to be part of the Commonwealth. That retreat citizenry is on par with Citizens United as something that causes me to despair of um, the prospects for democracy. On the other hand, a great public institution like this one would be the envy of any nation in the world. So at the very top, we're, we're world leaders. We've got the best university system in the world by every measure. Why is it that we can continue to do that, but we cannot educate K through 12 at the level of Singapore or Finland? And I think the answer is now pretty clear. It's not a mystery why the successful nations are successful. They pay their teachers very well. In order to get into teacher education programs in Finland or in Singapore, you have to test at the highest level. If you are the very best student, you become a teacher. Because you will be paid very well, you'll be respected, you'll have a secure life in the upper middle class. We don't view teachers that way. We don't reward them that way. We do it at the top. We're paid very well, much better than I ever thought I would be. But the work I'm doing is much less important than the work that a kindergarten or first grade teacher is doing. So why do I get paid more? What I'm doing is fun. What they're doing is hard work. And it's so much more important than what a college teacher is doing. So I think that's the answer. We simply do not, as a culture, value the people who provide the education, K through 12, and the cultures that are successful in their education do. It's that simple. It's not a question of class size. Or facilities, it's a question of the person who's doing the teaching. And this comes from a fairly clear eyed, unsentimental source of all this study that McKinsey did about 10 years ago that is gradually making its way, and they keep doing it, they keep redoing it. 
think that's an illustration of what I was trying to get at in the closing paragraph, that from the point of view of some Americans, some people in this country don't deserve to vote. It's that simple. If, if they don't deserve to vote, taking steps to make sure they vote is of no importance. That's the only justification I can offer. But from the point of view of the people who hold that belief, what they're doing is equivalent to what an earlier generation was doing in arguing that only people with a certain amount of education should be able to vote, or the only people with a certain amount of property should vote, that not everyone, by virtue of being a human being, gets to vote. Only certain people get to exercise this privilege. And the people who are excluded are judged by those people to be unworthy of the vote. Now, I agree with you. I think that's a travesty in democracy. And the problem with all of these perspectives, or all these shortcomings that people have been identifying, is that they, they are as clear to us as shortcomings as they can be. And yet, if we went to another room in another place in Columbus or another place in the United States, the things that we agree on would be seen by them as travesties of democracy. What I think needs to happen is we need to reinvigorate a discussion between this group and those groups, which isn't happening now. And I don't know how to make it happen, but the idea of studying democracy explicitly might be a way to begin having those conversations about why it is that we're never in the same room with those people who want to exclude some people from voting. I would ask them to make an argument justifying that, to explain why they think that's appropriate in America. Because I think if we begin to have that discussion, we may be able to begin moving closer to one another. I could be wrong. We could end up in loggerheads or um, fighting with each other. But I hope not, and I think democracy requires the um, taking up of those conversations. I think that's a, a great note on which to um, not end the conversation, but to pause the conversation. Because I think uh, this, last thought, this last thought that you have um, reaffirms the sense that we here at Ohio State should be continuing to have this conversation, exploring these themes and ideas, extending the, the people and the communities that are involved in the conversation and, and take today's event forward in the inquiry so that it will continue in that sense. I hope as well that um, the enthusiasm of this room, the degree of excitement, uh, means that uh, after we've done our homework, so to speak, for a little while on our own journey, that you would be um, at least open to the possibility of re-engaging with us on our, our project, because I, I sense the interest, the enthusiasm um, that we could keep going. Uh, and so we would love to, to continue that. Um, so, and maybe the best way to do that, again, is to allow us to, to do our work and then re-engage with you at some point down the road. Well, thank you. And with that, uh, thank you.